Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest is Dr. Jason Steffen, Associate Professor of Physics at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He was a member of the science team for NASA's Kepler mission, where he contributed to the discovery and characterization of hundreds of distant planets. He's a man of many pursuits, and we're going to talk about three of them, nuclear energy, exoplanets, and the Stefan method of boarding planes. How's that for a smorgasbord of ideas? You can follow Jason Stefan at Horizons at Twitch TV, as well as Rumble and YouTube, and of course, Twitter at HorizonSci. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. Somehow we're going to cover three complex topics in 30 minutes. So let's start with nuclear energy. You gave a talk available on YouTube. It was titled, Gods of Power, How Nuclear Energy Will Save the Planet. And I'm thinking, since everybody is screaming about renewable energy, can you elaborate on why specifically nuclear energy will save us? Uh, One of the important things with nuclear energy is that the fuel source is really dense. There's a lot of energy in nuclear fuel compared to what you get with renewable energy. Renewable energy is really diffuse, and so it takes a lot of infrastructure, it takes a lot of equipment and materials to provide a lot of energy through renewables because it's so spread out. Where with nuclear energy, you can concentrate the energy in single locations, and it's less disruptive to ecosystems and things like that. You don't have to... A single nuclear power plant can take up a small fraction of the area that it would take to power the same, produce the same amount of electricity that you would get through solar panels or wind farms. And I'm not opposed to solar panels or wind farms. It's just a statement that I think renewable energies are best as a local solution to a problem because you can't do solar in Seattle as well as you can do it, for example, in southern Nevada. And so nuclear energy is something that you can transport anywhere and it has a really high energy density and as a consequence can provide more reliable, more stable electricity, and also can be used for other applications anywhere in the world. Of course, you hear from people that say, well, there's Three Mile Island, there's Chernobyl, there's the possibility of leaks. And how do you not counter that, because you have to accept that, but how do you balance it so that the positives outweigh the negatives? Well, it's important to know what Three Mile Island, for example, actually was, which is essentially nothing. The The power plant itself shut down, but the consequence to the local environment was minuscule. It was the equivalent of taking a single chest x-ray. So people have blown out of proportion what happened at Three Mile Island. And it's just, for the most part, it's that they don't know. Or in some cases, it's people who are deliberately misleading others. But in general, the population, you know, just don't know what happened at Three Mile Island and how really unimportant it was. The fact that after a half a century of nuclear energy, they have three cases, one of which was hardly anything to worry about, one of which was dominated by the tsunami. So what happened to Fukushima was overwhelmingly a consequence of the tsunami in terms of like the destruction that took place. Nobody, death is a proxy for other kinds of destruction, but nobody died from Fukushima itself. Maybe one person from radiation exposure, where 20,000 people died from the tsunami. And in the case of Chernobyl, the best solution to avoid Chernobyl is to not build reactors like the one that was built at Chernobyl. And nowhere outside of the former Soviet Union does anybody build reactors like that. So that was a one-off? Yeah, they they basically built a reactor with no safety features, like no containment building. Incredible. 
Hmm. You can't build those kinds of reactors anywhere else. Do you see a challenge in terms of communicating the concept of the benefits versus the risks? In other words, what I mentioned earlier, people tend to view incidents that happen at nuclear reactors and other places as foreboding, and therefore we should not use that kind of energy at all. Is there a way to communicate the safety of that? It's hard. One of the challenges that you have with something that is as safe as nuclear energy is, because nuclear energy, as far as like energy sources that we're using globally in large quantities, nuclear energy is the safest by far, like way by far, safer than natural gas, safer than coal, safer than oil. And But what a consequence of having things safe, if you only have some kind of accidents once every two decades, then it becomes a gigantic news story where if you were to look at, say, mine fires from the 1930s or even fires at uh, industrial disasters that happen today, uh, they're a lot more common and so they're a lot less newsworthy. So part of it is understanding, you know, kind of renormalizing the, the dangers to fit you know, what the reality actually is and how it compares to other things. And there is a lot of education that's necessary. For example, in in classes in high school, it's not like nuclear physics is a subject that is taught, and so people aren't as familiar with what really works, what you know, what can happen at a nuclear plant, what can't happen at a nuclear plant, what things are, what concerns, safety concerns are real, because there are real safety concerns. I mean, clearly you have a source of energy that you need to treat safely, but what are the concerns that are real and what are the ones that are manufactured? These are subtleties that don't necessarily make it into the curriculum that everyone goes through in their K through 12 or even at the university. And so being able to communicate the nuances in an effective way is a challenge. And it's something that hopefully I can do uh, because I think that it's important. I am really concerned about the environment. And as a consequence, I think that nuclear energy needs to be brought back out and championed for the reliable and safe source of energy that it actually is. So it's not the technology that's the challenge. It's really the communications about it that's the challenge. Yeah, it's public perception for the most part. There are issues with nuclear waste storage, but to be honest, there are solutions to nuclear waste storage that are being implemented around the world. Some challenge, it's harder to do it in the United States because the law actually forbids, for example, the Department of Energy from studying any other ways of storing nuclear energy until Yucca Mountain is completed. That's written into the law. And so there's a lot of stuff that's stuck in the gears in the United States to prevent a lot of progress on that front. But there are companies in the United States that are going to foreign nations and helping them with their nuclear waste storage. It's fascinating that there's that intersection of science, politics, and law, and how that just sometimes just becomes a three-car pileup of what what could have been a, a relatively simple movement forward. But I appreciate you explaining that because all of us tend to hear stories about either accidents at nuclear plants or just that it's dangerous stuff. And I think you gave us a very, given your background, a very easy way to understand what the challenge is. And it's really more a challenge of communications than it is of the technology. Yeah, as a way of comparison, when I was really young, I lived near a coal mine in Utah. And right when we left the area, shortly after we left the area, there was the Wilbur Mine Fire that you know hardly anybody knows about, but there were several dozens of people that died in that fire, which is more than the 
Fukushima and Three Mile Island combined yep. from a single coal mine fire in the middle of nowhere in Utah. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you see any other forms of alternative energy coming to the fore? We talked about solar energy, and I don't know that you can store enough to transport it, for example, say from Las Vegas to Seattle, as you can other forms of energy. But are there, do you see other alternatives coming up to the point where we can utilize that on a mass basis? Um, it depends. For renewables, it kind of depends on what it is and where it's located. So, for example, with solar energy, there are some places where it can make a good contribution, and I think Southern Nevada is one of them. But to get it, the energy from Southern Nevada up to Seattle, you're going to lose a lot of the energy in transport. Just you know, sending it along high tra- the transmission lines, there's going to be losses in the amount of energy that you can produce. They have a lot of hydropower up in Washington State, so they have that advantage in that region. And so that kind of shows that Locally, they have a lot of hydropower, which we don't have in southern Nevada. Um, Only a small fraction of our electricity, when it actually comes from Hoover Dam, comes from Hoover Dam. Most of it comes from natural gas. And so that's part of it. Part of it is how do you store the electricity when it's not needed, and what are the best technologies to do that? There are a number of things that are proposed, but when you actually work out the math, and and the math isn't really hard, it's just not something that people think about, Uh, when you work through, you know, how much, how many hours of electricity can you actually store with a given facility turns out to really not be adequate to what the task is if you want to transfer all of our energy demands onto renewables. Part of the problem is that our residential electricity, for example, is only one-sixth of the energy consumption that we have nationwide. And so electricity on the whole is about a third and so you still have the transportation sector and industrial, you know, so making cement, making fertilizer, these are things that require large quantities of energy that can't be supplied through renewables. It's, uh, it doesn't come in at high enough temperature to be able to do that stuff. So that's part of it. Another thing is that we don't yet know what the waste stream looks like for renewable energy. So, for example, we can build solar panels now, but 20 years from now or 30 years from now, the solar panels are going to be worn out and they're going to need to be replaced. And we don't know what that looks like in terms of how much trash that's going to produce, how much waste that's going to produce that needs to be stored somewhere, what can be recycled. Some of it can be recycled, some of it can't. And if you're going to convert the entire electric grid onto renewables, it turns out a fairly straightforward calculation of you know, how long do these last? What's the efficiency that you get? How, how many do you need to, how many solar panels do you need to have in order to supply the electricity that you end up needing to replace a million square meters of solar paneling every day forever if you rely completely on, on that form of energy. And that's a challenge that you have with any renewable because the energy is so diffuse that it takes, you have to cast a wide net in order to capture it, which means that you're going to have a lot of parts that are going to need to be, that are going to wear out, need to be replaced. And so we don't know what that waste stream looks like. And we should, everybody should know going in, there will be waste associated with it. And what is that waste? How do we, are we going to handle it? What are we going to do? Because there are toxic chemicals that go into some of these things. Unlike nuclear waste, which gets safer as it sits longer, chemical waste doesn't. Chemical waste is just as lethal after the fact as it is before, and it will be equally lethal 
a million years from now where nuclear waste won't be. Well, I appreciate that overview of that. And again, I will link to your discussion on YouTube called Gods of Power, how nuclear energy will save the planet. I also want to talk to you a little bit about exoplanets. Uh, Those are the planets outside of our solar system. Why are they important to study? One of the reasons that they're... Okay, so there are a variety of reasons that are important that make exoplanets important to study. One of them is it is a natural question for humans to wonder if we're the only life in the universe and if there are other planets out there that might also harbor life. So there's that human aspect about understanding what our place is in the universe and how we relate to other other planetary systems. A second one is that it helps us understand a little bit more the details of our own history in terms of we understand to a fairly decent degree our own origins in terms of how do planets form, how did Jupiter form, how did the Earth form, when did Jupiter form and where, and how did it move around, and the same thing with the Earth. And so, but we don't know how common solar systems like our own are. Are there, is every, does every star have a planetary system like ours, or are the planetary systems different? And if they are different, how are they different and why are they different? What caused them to produce planets that are closer to the star than Mercury is? What caused them to produce planets that are much bigger than the Earth but still smaller than Neptune? So understanding the variety of planetary systems that are out there will help us constrain our own origin story. What are the paths that we didn't take as the solar system developed over the last four and a half billion years? So there's those kinds of interesting scientific questions. There's also a number of practical things that come from scientific research in general. These are, most of my graduate students won't be going on to become professors that study various things. Instead, they'll take the skills that they learn studying new problems that have never been answered before and taking those out into the marketplace where they can apply them in new situations and maybe make new goods and services to to provide to the general public. So it's a, it's also a reservoir of unanswered questions that we can use to train a workforce in answering technical questions that have never been answered before. Because so there's a variety of reasons why one would want to study these things. Because even the planets within our own solar system are difficult to study just because of distance. Now you're talking about planets that are beyond our solar system. So what are some of the techniques that you use to be able to study at that distance? There are a number of techniques that we can use. One of them is to look at the... Well, let me go back and say, there are a few things that are fairly straightforward to measure for the planets that are orbiting other stars. So you have a star, you have a planet going around that star. You can measure the mass of the planet as it goes around the star because you can see how the planet is causing the star to move in its position. Like the two, the star and the planet will orbit their common center of mass. And as a consequence, the star traces out the orbit of the planet just on a smaller scale. And we can measure that. And as a consequence, we can measure the mass of the planet. So we can get the planet mass. If the planet happens to pass in front of the star along the line of sight, we can measure the planet's size by looking at what fraction of the starlight gets blocked as the planet transits in front of the star. So that's the method that I have spent most of my time working on is the, this transit method. So we can get the planet's size, we can get its mass. As the planet passes in front of the star, we can also measure the chemical composition of its atmosphere. 
in certain cases. And that can tell us what the planets are made out of, how they might be the same or different from the planets in the solar system. We can measure the interactions that the planets have with each other in terms of as they interact with each other, they cause small changes to their orbits, and we can measure those changes. The same thing happens in the solar system. We can see the effect that Neptune has on Uranus and the effect that Jupiter has on Saturn. We can do that same type of analysis for these planets that are orbiting other stars. So we can't get a lot of information about what are the surface rocks like and what kinds of weather patterns they have, although that's not entirely true either. We can see some large-scale weather features on some planets as well. But we can't get the details that we could get, say, for Jupiter or for Mars. But there's still, if you have 4,000 planets and you can measure the orbital properties of 4,000 planets, that can tell you a lot. Even though each individual system you can't measure with the same degree of detail, the collection of the systems can still give you a lot of information. Fascinating. Because of the distance, and we talked about technology earlier when we talked about the challenges of energy, but what do you use to measure and what do you use to see at those distances? And are, is there a new technology that will allow us to go farther in terms of what we can observe and measure? Well, let me give you the example of the Kepler mission. So Kepler was a NASA mission. It was launched in 2009. And all that it did was measure the brightness of the stars that it was looking at. So it was observing about 150,000 stars continuously. And all it did was say, how bright is the star now? How bright is the star now? How bright is the star now? It was doing it every half an hour. And it was just looking for when a planet passes in front of the star and blocks a portion of the starlight, then the star is going to get a little bit dimmer. And so it would just measure every half an hour how bright is the star so that it could see when these transits took place. And that was basically it. That, those, that's what the Kepler data looks like, is a line that is how bright is the star, and then as it gets dimmer, it'll dip down a little bit, and then it brightens up again. And we use that to measure the planet sizes. We can get the orbital periods because the planet will transit once. Every time it goes around once, it'll transit again. And that's kind of all it takes is just how bright is the star. So if you can see a star, then you can measure these changes in the brightness. And so it doesn't matter quite as much that it's near or far from us other than the stars get dimmer when they're farther away and it's harder to see small changes in the brightness when the star is dimmer. For the other techniques, like this measurement of the Doppler shift, so the motion of the star because of the, the planet and the star's mutual orbit, that one works best when the stars are a lot closer. And it's just a matter of taking the spectrum and looking at how the light shifts a little bit. The wavelengths get stretched out or compressed as the star is moving towards us or away from us. So those are two technologies. We're not going to get detailed pictures. In fact, there's only about a half a dozen planets that, where we've actually seen light coming from the planet itself. All the rest of them are from these either reflected light from the star or light that is blocked by the planet as it passes in front of the star. That's amazing stuff. And I know we're just teasing people, giving them ap appetizers of these different subjects, but I think it's enough for people to get their appetite wet and then go and discover and study more themselves. 
And of course, we'll mention all the places that they can follow you again, too, at the end of the show where they can learn even more. And I want to go into a subject that has nothing to do with the first two subjects, which is the Stefan plan. And that had to do with boarding airplanes, how you get people onto commercial aircraft in a very efficient way. And it's called the Stefan plan. It's also called other things over over time as well. How did you decide to get into that subject in terms of just looking at, you can call it the Stefan boarding method, the Stefan perfect, but basically the Stefan method. How did you decide to go down that road? That actually came from frustration as I was traveling to a scientific conference. So I was, of course, I was late to the airport because that's the way things work when you're in a hurry. And I had been (laughs) stuck in traffic. I was stuck in traffic waiting in line there. And then I got into the airport and I had to wait in line at security. And then I got up to the gate and I had to wait in line at the gate to get my ticket scanned. And then I was walking down the jetway to get onto the airplane and I had to wait in line at the door to the airplane. And I thought to myself, there's got to be a better way to get people onto the airplane. There shouldn't be the need for us to wait at the door to the airplane when I just waited at the ticket scanning thing at the gate. And so I had been thinking about it off and on for a couple years, just mulling over, like, what is the fastest way to do this? And the answer was obvious at the time, which is you board the airplane from the back to the front because then everybody's out of everybody's way. And so I decided at some point I I needed to demonstrate that that was the case. So I wrote a piece of software to model this. So I decided either I need to demonstrate that this is the case and like show that it's true, or I need to stop thinking about it so, because I need to move on to something else. I can't have this rattling around in my head for the next 20 years. And so I wrote a piece of computer code that modeled people standing in line and moving down an airplane and sitting down. And I ran it. Okay, let's put everybody in back to front, go. And then let's go to the worst possible way to board people onto the airplane, which would be boarding them from the front to the back, because then everybody's in everybody's way. And so I ran ran it going front to back and compared the times, and they were almost identical. And I was like, this can't possibly be true. What's wrong with my code? And so I went back and I debugged my code. I made it do some animation so that I could see that it was working the way that it was supposed to. And it was working the way that it was supposed to. I was completely shocked that boarding from the back of the airplane to the front of the airplane was essentially just as bad as boarding from the front of the airplane to the back of the airplane. And so that made me, okay, well, let's figure out what it is. What's the best way to solve this? So there's a technique called, there's a technique to solve the traveling salesman problem, which is if you're a traveling salesman, what's the best route to take? Uh, And it's called Markov Chain Monte Carlo. And the idea is that you take, in this case, you take all the passengers, you line them up, you switch two passengers, and then you board the airplane with those two passengers switched. And if it boards faster, then you keep that change and you switch to other passengers. And if it doesn't board faster, then you flip a coin and decide whether you keep the change or you reject the change. And so you're just randomly reordering the passengers and sending them into the airplane to see if it if it boards faster. And what I looked at was, as the airplane boarding time improves, what is the typical separation between adjacent passengers in line? And what I was getting was two rows. If you send the passengers in so that the person in front of me in line is two rows in front of me in line, then we can both put our luggage away at the same time without getting in each other's way, and we can sit down. And so what it does is it turns the airplane boarding process from a serial process where one person can sit down at a time. One person gets to their place, puts their luggage away, sits down. The next person fills that spot, puts their luggage away, and sits down. 
and turns it into a parallel process where you send in 15 people. They're in rows, all the even rows from 2 to 30. They all put their luggage away at the same time, and they all sit down at the same time, and then you can send in the next group of 15 people. So instead of having one person at a time who's sitting down or who's actively getting out of the way, you can have many people who are actively getting out of the way, and the airplane fills up significantly faster. Every time we've tried it, it's just performed the way that it was, essentially the way that it was designed. I mean, there's always mistakes because you're always using people, but it's just been faster than everything else that's been tried. Will the airlines ever adopt it? Probably not. But why? Um, there are a number of reasons why it's... Okay, so the air, airlines, some airlines may adopt something like it. Uh, it depends a little bit on, for example, how much time does the boarding process take compared to how much time the flight itself takes. So if the boarding process takes 15 minutes, but the flight takes three hours, then saving one minute isn't really going to save that much time. However, let's say that you are in Hawaii, where you have many flights that take 20 minutes as you go from one island to another, then the boarding process is a lot larger fraction of each individual leg. So there are certain situations where it makes more sense to focus on the boarding strategy compared to how do you save money on fuel. Another thing is that a lot of airlines don't cater to the people who are sitting in coach. They make most of their money off of the people who are up in the front of the airplane who paid five or $10,000 for their ticket. And so they're going to make sure that those people come back next time. And so how the rest of the airplane boards is less important to their business model than that. Another thing is if boarding the boarding process was really that important to the airlines, then they wouldn't charge you for checked bags because they would want more people to put the luggage into the airplane that can happen more rapidly. And then there's less carry-on luggage, and so people can go in and sit down. Instead, what happens is a lot of airlines sell their available cargo space for you know, parcels, basically, to send mail from one place to another. And so the airline company has an incentive to fill up every available nook and cranny of their airplane with something that generates money, which I think is fine, right? It's, they, they have extra space. They fill it with parcels, uh, you know, packages that need to get delivered somewhere. Um, it saves energy. It makes them money. But that's going to slow down the boarding process because more people are going to take their carry-on luggage with them. So it's, it's one part of a mixture of things that they need to consider. At the same time, if they want to improve their boarding strategies, my email is available. They can <laughs> exactly. It sounds like economics trumps efficiency in this case. So that may be the maybe the challenge for you. But yes, we'll, we'll definitely uh, <laughs> we'll definitely have them get in touch with you all. I'll have all that information. Well, that's a great way to end it. My guest has been Dr. Jason Steffen, associate professor of physics at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He was a member of the science team for NASA's Kepler mission where he contributed to the discovery and characterization of hundreds of distant planets. And you can follow Jason Steffen at Horizons at Twitch TV, as well as Rumble and YouTube, and of course, Twitter at HorizonSci. Jason, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.